0: Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to be with you. Uh, I hate that I missed last week, but I am so thankful for Anthony uh, Brown, who I guess is not here yet, um, for filling in. I'm I'm grateful that as I had to quarantine and be isolated, um, I didn't have to worry about Sunday school. I didn't have to worry about table groups because I know that we have plenty of people like, like Anthony who can fill in for us and teach the word faithfully. Uh, But today, we are going to continue driving through the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 21, and our aim is to go all the way through chapter 17. So uh, as you're finding Matthew 16, start in verse 21. We're going to go all the way through 17. It's a lot of material, uh, so we won't be able to dive down super deep, but we'll be able to get some, I think, some, some good things from the text. So if you're taking notes, the title of the message is Walking by Faith in Christ, because today is a a massive shift in the story of Matthew. Uh, Today marks a, a huge shift. Last week, you heard from Anthony in the beginning of Matthew 16 that Peter, as the representative of the disciples, confessed with his mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And so from here on out, there's going to be a different kind of tone, a different kind of attitude that Jesus has specifically with his disciples. We're going to look at three sections in Matthew 16 and in 17 to hopefully catch a vision ourselves of both the future that is ours in Christ, that he's going to be teaching his disciples and the reality of life in the meantime. If you and I are followers of Jesus, we have great hope. We have hope for the future. We have hope that Jesus is going to return, that he's going to come to make all things right, that he's going to reconcile all things to himself, that there's going to be an end to sin, an end to shame, and end to death, and end to pain and sadness and sorrow. This is, this is a good day coming, uh, but it is not here yet. And so, although we have hope for the future, we know that the future is not fully here now. In other words, before we walk by sight, we have to walk by faith. Before we live in the full reality that is promised to us in Jesus, we have to live in kind of the shadows and in the darkness of a world still broken by sin. And the disciples are no less obligated to do that than we are. So graciously, we have this written account from Matthew where Jesus gives his disciples a series of glimpses to show that the hardship of walking by faith in a sinful world, that the reality that you and I live day in and day out, is worth the glory of what's to come. It is worth all that God has promised to give to us in Christ. All of this is is connected. So let's, let's read, starting in verse 21. We'll read through the end of chapter 16, and then we'll get started. From that time, that is from the time where they confess that he's the Christ, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We Worship you, we praise you, we honor you, God, because you, in your sheer grace, revealed yourself to us, your creatures, and you've given us this this strong and stable and trustworthy revelation in the pages of Scripture. So, Lord, we pray that by the same Spirit who inspired these words, you would illuminate our eyes and our hearts to behold the glory of God and the glories of the gospel. We pray that you would transform us. One degree of glory to the next. We pray that you would do that even now. In Christ's name, amen. So the first little vignette, the first scene we're going to look at this morning is from Matthew 16, and I'm titling this point, A Dose of Truth. A Dose of Truth. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one who was promised to come. And the response of Jesus to that confession is to begin teaching them about his impending suffering and death. The confession that they confess that Jesus is the Son of God is actually saying more than they even realized when they said it. So the Messiah, the, the concept of the Messiah, the, the Christ, in the first century was seen primarily as the son of David. Remember David, the great king of Israel. That the son of David, the Messiah, would be a ruler who would establish his throne in Jerusalem and then conquer all of Israel's enemies once and for all. He was going to be an unstoppable leader, a liberator, a redeemer, a warrior king. And so it makes sense that the Israelites carried a chip on their shoulder against the Roman Empire right? They're being subjugated by Rome, and all of the believing Jews would be walking around with this kind of thought, like, just wait. Just wait till the Messiah comes. Just wait till the Son of David comes to set up his throne. And for hundreds of years, they've had this thought in the back of their minds, you'll be set straight once and for all when the warrior king comes. You'll be set straight when the Son of David comes. And the fact is, that's, that's totally natural, right? Like, we We all want to be on the winning team, right? So right now, just culturally relevant, Auburn is doing really well as a basketball school, right? Number one team in the country. It feels good to be on the winning team. It feels good to be winning the games, the games that other people said we shouldn't win, right? And even if it seems like we're losing, we want to maintain our commitments that we're actually on the winning team, and we'll come up with reasons for why things are the way they are if we don't look good, right? So this may totally not jive with half of you, but like last week when we played Missouri, it was not a pretty game, right? And then all everybody, everybody in Auburn was saying, well, hey, a win's a win's a win, which is totally true, by the way. A win is a win. I'll take an ugly win versus a pretty lose any day. Right? But we want to justify ourselves. We want to justify why our team's better, even if they don't look like it. Right, The score might not always reflect what's real. And in the same way, the Jews are having the same kind of thought against their Roman rulers. Well, it looks like you're winning, Rome, but when the son of David comes, then we'll really know who's going to be in control. So when Jesus says that his role as the Messiah is to suffer and die, it doesn't doesn't compute to Peter. It doesn't compute to the disciples. And so Peter goes so far as to rebuke Jesus, as in to call him out and correct him. Now, we know, just reading the Gospel of Matthew, that Peter is a, well, he's bold, right? He's, He's brash. Sometimes he's a bit hasty. Sometimes Peter says something before he thinks through it. And so he goes so far as to say to Jesus, "No way, Jesus, no way this is going to happen to you. Surely not. You're going to be the conqueror. You're not going to die? That doesn't make any sense." And Jesus responds with a rebuke of his own. He says, "Get behind me, Satan." This the same man who just confessed with his lips that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus is now calling him the devil. Peter's view of the Messiah would be a hindrance to the mission that Jesus received from his father. And if you remember back in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew, the devil himself offered Jesus a crown without a cross. He said, "Just, just worship me, and all of these kingdoms will be yours. And here, Peter is basically calling for the same thing. He's telling Jesus, "No, no, 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 You don't have to suffer and die to be the King. You don't, you don't have to die. You don't have to be wounded. You don't have to be pierced for for any other reason. You, you just need to rule." So Jesus calls on his disciples, and he calls us to consider what life would be like if we weren't at the center of it, right? Jesus in verses twenty-four through twenty-eight shows that following Jesus means to follow him in his suffering. And that suffering will be transformed into resurrection life. We know that promise. We know that this life is not all that there is. But we know also that you can't have resurrection without death. And so Jesus is calling on the disciples to to basically reevaluate how they view the world right? They're on the winning team, they think. They're going to be the ones in control. They're going to be the ones in charge. It's all about them. They're at the center of the story. But instead, Jesus says, you need to deny yourself. Self-denial for the sake of Christ. That's what Jesus is after, over your pursuits of some kind of puffed up self-esteem. That no matter what the world looks like, you're actually on the winning team. This is a call to you and me and everyone in the world that if we're to come to Christ, we would be wise to count the cost. It is infinitely worth it, but it is costly. Following Jesus is not ultimately about getting what you currently want. I'm going to say that again. Following Jesus is not ultimately about getting what you currently want. Jesus is not a means to your desired ends. He's not the way to you getting notoriety or fame or money or safety or pleasure or a family. And even if you export all those desires into heaven and say, well, all of my desires are going to be fulfilled in heaven, you're still in danger if that's the way you ultimately think. You're still in danger of using Jesus as a means to just getting stuff that you want. Jesus however is no means to an end he is the end Jesus is the treasure he is the prize he is the thing that we get like heaven is heaven because when we go there he is there we follow Jesus because we get Jesus so we take up our cross Jesus says daily and decrease so that he might increase. We die to ourselves so that the life of Christ might shine more brightly in us. And and then Jesus ends the section with a curious verse. Look at verse 28 again. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does that mean? Some of you will not die before the Son of Man comes into his kingdom. Well, We're 2,000 years later, and I'm not so sure that's happened. So what's going on? Well, there are many different interpretations to this text, but I believe that Jesus is pointing to what he just talked about, right? Why is Jesus rebuking Peter? Because Peter was denying that what was going to happen was suffering, death, and resurrection. So I believe that Jesus is pointing to his suffering, his death, in his resurrection. And they all stand in for his work to usher in this new covenant that you and I get to be a part of through faith in Christ. So just a little quick aside on uh, the work of Christ. You and I, when we think about what did Jesus do for sinners, we probably automatically go to he died on the cross for our sins. And if you're going to go anywhere, that's probably where you should go, Right? That's where the atonement happens. That's where the wrath of God is poured out on the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And it's on the cross that your sins and mine get exchanged with Jesus' righteousness. So if we're thinking about the, 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 the pinnacle, the, the center facet of the jewel of the work of Jesus, surely the cross is it. But that's not all that Jesus did, right? The work of Jesus began all the way back at His incarnation. That He would come as the Son of God to take on flesh and dwell among His people. It it continues in His sinless life where He actually fulfilled all of the law of God without fail. He did die on the cross. But He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave in resurrection power. And then he ascends, right? We know the story, Acts 1, that the disciples will receive power from the Holy Spirit and he ascends into heaven to go be seated at the right hand of his Father. He rules even now at the right hand of his Father over all heaven and earth because he already has all authority in heaven and earth. He intercedes for us. This is, uh, we see this all throughout the New Testament, that Jesus is our great high priest who intercedes for us to the Father. And we know that one day he's going to return. So all of these things make up the work of Christ. And you can spend a long, long time just diving into one of those aspects of what Jesus has done for you and for me. But I think when Jesus says these words in verse 28, he specifically has his rule in heaven and the age of the church in mind. Right? Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, with all authority in heaven and on earth. And so when he ascends in Acts chapter 1, we don't have time to go there, but in in Daniel chapter 7, we see this this vision. Daniel sees this vision of, of in heaven, there is one coming up through the clouds like a son of man, and the ancient of days gives him authority and a throne and a kingdom, Right? So, so Daniel has this vision in heaven. He's looking and seeing up through the clouds comes this Son of Man. And in Acts, 1, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are seeing Jesus ascend from the earth up through the clouds. I think it's the same story. It's the same scene. And so what Jesus is saying is, there are some of you who will still be here when I come into my kingdom. There will still be some of you standing, still be some of you alive when I go to sit at the right hand of my Father and receive the kingdom. We'll get a little taste of that here in the next passage. We have to fly. So uh, in the next 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we're going to try to go through all through chapter 17. It's going to be fun. All right, chapter 17. Let's run together. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John as brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So here in the second scene, we're going to see a vision of glory. A vision of glory. Jesus has humbled the disciples' expectations by showing them that the Messiah would actually suffer and die. But to Peter, James, and John, he has given them a vision of what is coming. And that is his glory. Six days later, they go up on this mountain. And that location should clue us into something important, right? Not only are Jesus' major teachings from the mountain, like the Sermon on the Mount... But on the mountain is where God works in powerful ways to reveal himself to his people. So you think of Moses going up on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus to receive the law. Or Elijah in 1 Kings challenging the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's on the mountain, so to speak, where God shows up in powerful ways. And that's just who we see here. Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and the voice of God. But beside Jesus are Moses and Elijah, the, the representatives of the law and the prophets, basically a visual depiction of the Hebrew scriptures standing on either side of Jesus, who has now been enveloped in radiance. And so Peter, the hasty one, right, says, man, I guess we're going to hang out on the mountain with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Like, we need to build some tents. Like We need to, we need to set up camp. Right? Like, we got, we got lots to talk about. And so, Peter is thinking still about himself. <laughs> He's still thinking, okay, uh, I, I want to maximize this. I want to think about all the things I can get out of this. So, let's, let's, let's make sure that they can stay here and be comfortable. And then, the voice of God comes through the bright cloud of his presence. Now, you remember that kind of cloud of glory was present with God's people in the past. It was present in the wilderness as the people of Israel walked through uh, the wilderness behind the the cloud of glory by day and the fire by night. The the glory cloud of God's presence was filling the tabernacle when it was dedicated at the end of the book of Exodus. It was filled again at the temple in the Old Testament once Solomon completed his work. And as we'll learn through our study on Wednesday nights, shameless plug if you're not a part of equipping groups, totally you should come we'll learn in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah that the cloud of God's presence never returned when the temple was rebuilt. The temple was destroyed when the Babylonians came. The temple was rebuilt when the Persians allowed Israel to go back. And God's presence never returned. But here it is, over Jesus and this group, and a voice from that cloud proclaims, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Then he says, listen to him. And that should remind us, if we know our Old Testament story, that in Deuteronomy 18, again, we don't have time to turn there, but you can write it down. Deuteronomy 18.5, it reminds us that Moses even taught that there would be a greater prophet who would come to speak the word of God and God's people would listen to him. And the voice from the cloud adds that bit to remind us that Jesus is that coming prophet. He is the one who is greater than the rest. The the beginning of Hebrews says it like this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Peter, James, and John are witnessing this glorious reality of who Jesus really is, but when they hear the voice of God, it fills them with terror, and they fall on their faces. Jesus, the one who speaks the word of God because he is the word of God made flesh, says to them, Rise and have no fear. So don't miss this. Seeing Jesus in his glory Hearing the voice of the Lord is terrifying. You think about Isaiah 6. When Isaiah sees the Lord, he says, oh no, I'm ruined. He's filled with terror. Seeing Jesus for who he is, is a terrifying sight. But Jesus is also able to take away our fear. Right? Jesus is terrifying because he's holy. And that's terrifying because we're not. But Jesus is able to take away our fears. So Jesus commands the disciples to remain silent about this vision until the resurrection. So don't tell anybody what you saw. And as they're walking down the mountain, they're pondering, and they're, they're asking each other, and they finally ask Jesus, well, What is it about Elijah? Don't the scribes tell us that Elijah has to come and then then the Messiah comes? It was prophesied in places like Malachi that the prophet Elijah would come again to make a way for the Messiah. And Jesus responds by cluing them into the fact that Elijah had already come. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy. And and you can notice that for yourself. You go read the account in Kings of Elijah, and then you go read the account of John at the beginning of the Gospels, and you will see they look the same, and they're saying the same things. They're wearing the same clothes. They're eating the same food. They have the same message. And Jesus is saying they didn't recognize him, but he already came. After centuries of silence, Perhaps more clearly than ever before, the disciples are understanding that they are living in the time where God's promises would be fulfilled. God is speaking once again, but this vision on the mountain was not to last, at least not yet, right? They look up and they see Jesus as he normally is. Those realities of glory are coming. They are sure, they are promised, but they are not here in their fullness. So we read our last section Make some closing thoughts. Look at verse 14 with me. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and said, kneeling before him, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like, the, like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What did you think, Simon? Or what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself." So three quick scenes in this last section. This is our third point, a return to reality. The three disciples have seen this vision of glory and they come down from the mountain and it's back to the usual, back to brokenness, back to this message of suffering and death, back to the obligations of living in this world. So we return to a crowd and we see this man with a son who is unable to be healed by the disciples. And Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his disciples, but he begins with a rebuke. He says that this is a twisted and faithless generation, and it reminds us that the people of Israel in the Old Testament were the same way. Often the language of the Old Testament is that the Israelites were stiff-necked, right? They were stubborn. They were unwilling to surrender. They were unwilling to depend on the Lord. Instead, they would run after the problems that they had with their own strength, their own strategy, their own ingenuity, and would come up short over and over and over again. But they wouldn't learn the lesson. And so often the prophets call Israel stiff necked. So Jesus heals this boy, and the disciples are obviously have to be embarrassed. And so they go to Jesus alone, not in public, privately it says, and they ask Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And it's a fair question, because if you remember, we learned in chapter 10 of Matthew that Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons and to heal every kind of sickness. Right? Like, they've been given authority from Jesus to do this thing, and they couldn't do it. So why not? Jesus tells them that their issue was their little faith. Instead of the faith, instead of faith in themselves, they were to have faith in Jesus. Right? That they believed they had the power to do this thing, and it didn't happen. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying to the disciples or to you and me that if we have problems in our life that we can't fix, it's because our faith is too small. That is a horrendous idea. And unfortunately, there are people who, there are people who claim to be following Jesus and his word who will say things like that. They will say, oh, that problem in your life, that problem in your marriage, that problem in your family, that problem with your body, ultimately it's just because you're not believing. You're not faithful. If you would just believe, if you would just have faith, and if you would just show that faith, and often that showing of faith includes giving them some money. If you just believe God for that miracle, he'll do it. That's not how this works. I mean, we can look at the story of Job and know that that is not how it works. We can look at Jesus' own life and know that that's not how it works. Jesus had perfect faith and was crucified, lived a life of poverty, never had a place to lay his head at night. But there is a lesson for us all here that many of us are surrounded by radical problems that do require radical trust in God over ourselves and there are many in our orbit there are many in our in our network of daily life who like that little boy are perhaps prompts for us not to run to our own capacities but to run to Jesus just like his father did and say Lord there's this problem I know that I can't do this but we, Lord we know that you can So we run to Jesus in prayer when we're made aware of these prompts in our life that the world is still broken rather than merely attempting to fix our problems in our own weakness. That often gets us into so much trouble like, it, it often just makes it so much worse, doesn't it? I mean, I just think about my own life. Like, when I was a kid, like, I'd have problems or something would go wrong or I would, I would do something I wasn't supposed to do. And rather than going to my parents, the ones who often could fix that problem very easily, I would hide it. I would try to fix it. I'd try to maneuver something. I'd try to talk to somebody that was in my corner and try to manipulate the situation to make it better. And so many times it would just make it so much worse because I'm living in my own weakness and I'm failing to recognize that if I would just go and surrender the reality that I am in need, that this, this problem could be fixed. I don't have the equipment to fix the problem. And students, there are things in your own life right now, you do not have the equipment to fix on your own. I mean, we live in a country that we love, that we are thankful for, that has a message that, that self-reliance is ultimately a good thing. And in a very real sense, that's true, right? Like if you work hard, things will happen. That's, that's usually a pretty good principle for life. But there are plenty of things in this life that rugged individualism will never fix for you. And the whole story of the gospel is owning up to the fact that you have always been in great need. You're just now aware of it and confess it. The size of our faith, and Jesus uses the example of a mustard seed, a very, very small seed. The size of our faith is not to commend that we only need a teensy amount of faith to do impossible things. Like this, is, this is the... This is the the misunderstanding of Simon the magician. You go read the book of Acts, and you read about this man named Simon who comes to Christ, becomes a believer, because he thinks if he would just get in in the crowd, in the loop of the people who follow Jesus, he'd be able to do miraculous things. He'd have powers. That's not how it works. You don't go and say, okay, well, if I just believe in Jesus, then I'll be able to do whatever I want. No. The size of our faith that Jesus is talking about is not to get us to focus on our faith. It's to get us to focus on the object of our faith. It's to show the almighty power of the one that we have faith in. So after this, Jesus reminds the disciples like after they fail and he cleans up their mess, he sees fit to remind them once again. I'm going to be delivered over to suffer and die. And it says the disciples were greatly distressed. Well, you think? They heard that before, like just one chapter before, but it bears repeating. Jesus is telling them again, and now they're distressed because they're realizing that following Jesus is not only to get the good stuff, but it's to join him in his sufferings. Craig Keener, a New Testament scholar, says it like this Faith means willingness to go where God leads, not power to avert all unpleasant circumstances. We mature as the Lord leads us through hard tests for his name's sake, forcing us to actively trust his provision and power. And maybe that's a question that we all need to ask ourselves. You should be really honest with yourself and say, am I following Jesus just because I'm going to get some good stuff out of it? Am I following Jesus because it's going to give me some kind of edge or advantage in in this life that I can manipulate for my own gain and my own control and my own power and my own safety and my own comfort? Or am I believing in Him because He's worthy? Because we love God more than ourselves. Which leads us to conclude the little story with a little story about paying taxes. <laughs> I love that in the Gospels, it's just true to life. It's not always this kind of high kind of pie in the sky, hard to understand, hard to reach thing. I mean, we go from the transfiguration to healing a sick boy to paying taxes. <laughs> but the context is important. Your subheading in your Bible might say something like the temple tax. Jesus calls it the two drachma tax. The two drachma tax is a half a shekel, right? So four drachmas would be a whole shekel. And it, the context of this is that the temple took up a tax from the Israelites year after year to maintain the upkeep of the temple. And so Jesus is calling out to the disciples, especially Peter, hey, so when a king takes taxes, does he take the taxes from his sons, from his family, or from others? And Peter says, from others, right? Like kings don't tax princes. And Jesus says, oh, well, then the sons are free. And what Jesus is getting at is, who's the king of the temple? Well, it's God. And you just confessed a a chapter ago, I'm the son of God. So, should I pay the tax? Because the sons are free. And what Jesus is trying to show these disciples is is that something very massive is about to shift. Something very massive, is taking place. God's Son says that He's free. And if we are in Christ, then we are God's children too, which means we're free. But Jesus models humility and care. So, so pause, just so that we're all clear. The temple tax is not a tax levied by a governmental authority. So there's a lot of people who might take this text. There's another text about text about paying taxes to Caesar. That's a more appropriate text. But there's some people who take this as like, Christians, we shouldn't have to pay taxes. Taxation is theft. It's just like compulsion to give money to where I don't want to give it because it's my property and I should be able to do what I want. And there's an argument there. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, What is your relation to the king of the temple? Are you outside his family or are you in it? And so Jesus says to be around him is to be a son, to be free. But Jesus models humility and care by following the obligations of society and paying the tax. He doesn't want to cause offense. That's what he says. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, right? He doesn't want to cause others to stumble by his lording over them his, role, his rights and authority. So he's free to not pay that tax, but he's not going to operate in that liberty for the sake of people who don't have that freedom and liberty. To not offend them over something that is not necessary. So as followers of Jesus, there may be things in this culture that we submit to because we do not want others to stumble unnecessarily. We can surrender our rights for the sake of our neighbor. Our message alone is offensive, right? The gospel is offensive. It's a stumbling block. And Jesus shows Peter in this moment that wisdom is required in picking what battles are more important. So, so for instance, we're not the virtue police, right? Like, it's not your job or mine as Christians to to run around among unsaved people and commend uh, that they need to listen to you because they're doing wicked things and you're not. And you know why they're wicked, and they don't. And they should really listen to you because you know the truth, and they obviously don't. That's unnecessarily offensive. If I wasn't a Christian and somebody acted that way towards me, it doesn't matter how true the thing is that they're saying. I don't want to believe them, and I don't want to listen to them. You can choose not to blast others all the time and be known as a self-righteous jerk and still be a faithful follower of Jesus. Those things are not incompatible because Jesus does it all the time. And in fact, the only people that Jesus gets really upset with are those people. The only people that Jesus gets really annoyed at in his earthly ministry are the people who are lording their status of righteousness and holiness and understanding over people who obviously don't get it. We may have an offensive message, but it does not give us the right to be offensive people. That's true in here. That's true in your school. That's true in your teams. That's true in your jobs whenever you get those. My hope and my prayer is that we see that living that way is going to require Faith in Jesus. It's going to require recognizing I am not the Savior of these people. Jesus is. And so it's not for me to sit in judgment over those people. It's Jesus' job. I can be clear. We can have convictions over what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is honoring to the Lord, and what is wicked and sinful in his eyes. I'm not saying we step down any iota from our confidence in knowing the truth from error. But what I'm saying is Jesus has modeled for us in this little seemingly insignificant story that there are plenty of ways in our life That we just recognize if I'm going to be offensive to someone, I want it to count. And if I don't have to be offensive to them, then wisdom is probably going to lead me to not be offensive. right? Like Jesus doesn't call on the tax collectors and the prostitutes to clean themselves up before he sits at their table and has a meal with them. Like we, I've already said this before in an earlier text, but we've got to reckon with the fact that sinners were drawn to Jesus, like they were attracted to him. They wanted to be around him, and it just makes me wonder. And I, I'm, it's I'm, I'm, I'm calling on myself more than anybody else in the room. But the question that has to be asked is, is that true of us? Like, is that true of us? collectively as a youth ministry and as a church, is that that true of you individually as a follower of Jesus to where sinners on the margins of our community would look at our church, that teenagers in your schools would look at our youth group, that people in your life would look at you and say, man, I really just want to spend some time with them. I really want to be around them. Like Jesus was not capitulating the truth And yet that was the case all throughout his life to the point that the Pharisees and the self-righteous were constantly condemning him for his interaction with sinners. So my hope and my prayer is that as we think about that vision of glory that awaits us in Christ, we live here in reality. We get a a dose of the truth that life in this world is going to look hard. It's going to be hard. It's going to be filled with suffering and not getting what you want and not having things go the way that you want them to go. But all of those things are light, momentary afflictions, Jesus says they're light, they're momentary, they're they're insignificant in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. So you being uncomfortable around people who don't think like you or believe like you or talk like you or vote like you would when you can vote, that discomfort, that feeling out of place, that feeling like, ah, this is not how things should be, it seems to me that we ought not to avoid that but to learn how to walk in faith in that. Because that's the real world, right? And we have the opportunity to gather together as God's people to bring encouragement to one another, to challenge one another, to be faithful. Like my my hope and my prayer is that you would see the people in this room as the people that you can go to and say, man, it's hard it's hard to live out there and to be kind and to be honest and to be caring and to be compassionate when, when none of it gets returned. It's hard to be gracious to people who disagree with you. It's hard to be kind to people who hate you. It's hard to think that you're, the, to live with people who think that what you believe is, is wicked. And for the people in this room to go, man, I know exactly what that's like. So we walk by faith in Jesus and we recognize that when we fall short, when we don't live that way, when we don't show love to our neighbor as ourself, that when we find ourselves exposed to the core of our own self-righteousness, our own pride, our own lack of faith, that we remember these stories like Jesus going to pay the tax. And we remember with great joy and great relief, that Jesus has already lived that way perfectly for us. And that my standing before God is not based on how I'm doing today or how much I killed it yesterday or how much I'm failing today. My standing before God is based on how Jesus did it perfectly already. And that frees us up to be uncomfortable, that frees us up to realize that life in Christ, life with the people of God is going to be a wonderfully beautiful, amazing thing full of suffering and hardship. So you have no time to talk about this. But I want to pray for you. Maybe just spend time just right where you are. If you're not at a table, just jump into a table and just for a few moments maybe decompress. Um, and then we'll 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 do some announcements at the end let me pray